our lives and fill our lives and fill us as the body of Christ with his joy because he walked out that day as the king of joy. Easter is when joy and a person surprise this whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. The book of Hebrews closes with what we would call a benediction. It is a blessing upon those folks who are listening to the book and those who will now live this book. As we've seen in recent weeks, this book was written to a group of believers who were of Hebrew origin, and these believers find themselves anticipating a storm that is on the horizon. It is a storm of Roman persecution that will be spearheaded by Nero, the emperor of Rome. And they realize that this storm of persecution means many of them are going to lose their jobs, lose their homes, lose their families, maybe even to the place of losing their lives. And into this environment, the book of Hebrews was, was written. Imagine a group of believers meeting in a home, hearing the book of Hebrews as it is slowly read to them. And then it comes to the conclusion. And the conclusion pronounces a blessing, a benediction of joy upon them. It is a blessing that comes from God's peace, a risen Savior, and an eternal covenant that God makes with them. And this is what's going to get them through the storm, and this is what will get them through life. And it's what gets us through the storm, and it's what gets us through life, and it's what makes all the difference, the peace of God a risen Savior that we worship and serve, and an eternal covenant or promise that He has made to us. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now my sermon outline is contained in your bulletin, and I invite you, if you will, to follow along with me. First of all, notice in this benediction, he says, Now may the God of peace, the God of peace, peace is the eternal disposition of God. If you could look into the soul of God, into the character of God, into the very essence of who God is, you would find peace there. It is intrinsic to who he is. This idea of the peace of God is the idea, is the concept that God is not just the absence of conflict within himself. It is rather the understanding that God is well-being. That he's okay with himself. That he's okay with what he's doing. That he's at peace with himself. It is the idea that God is working out his plan and his purpose in his own way. So often when we think of God or hear God talked about, it is in terms of him being angry or judging that is God's reaction to sin. But God in His essence is not angry. God in His essence is not looking for ways to run around behind us and nuke us and get a joy out of doing that. He has to respond to sin. He has to react to sin. But in the very essence of who God is, He is whole. He is completeness. In fact, the Hebrew word that is used here... Uh, that corresponds to the Greek word is shalom. If you go to Israel, you'll hear them say constantly when they greet each other, shalom. And the idea of shalom is not just the absence of conflict. It is the idea of being complete. 
It is the idea of being whole. God in and of himself is whole. He is complete. God in and of himself is settled. He is in well-being. God is at peace in his own disposition of who he is. And what does that mean for you and me as the God of peace? It means that he will get you through the storm. It means that he will heal the wounds in our lives. It means that if you're out on the sea of life and you are sailing along and the storms come at you, whether they're storms of disease, storms of loss, storms of temptation, storms of the unexpected, storms that are expected, whatever the storms take, God is saying as the God of peace, I will get you through the storm. The issue, folks, is never the severity of the storm. The issue is the power of the God who has promised and committed to get us through the storm. We just got to trust in Him as He gets us through it. No matter how deep the pain in our lives, He is the God of peace who has the power to bring healing to us. Now, sin works in our lives to do the exact opposite of creating wholeness in us. Sin works in us to take chunks out of us. And every time you and I sin and every time we give in to the pattern and a habit of sin in our lives, Satan is devising that and using that to take chunks out of us, to make us incomplete, to destroy wholeness that is within us. Imagine life that God gives us being like a sheet of paper. And every time you and I sin, there's a chunk that goes out. There's a tear that happens. Every time a habit sets up in our lives, there's another tear that happens. And after a while, life is pretty torn up. It's pretty messed up. The chunks have come out. We are yearning on the inside for completeness. Down on the inside, we are broken. Down on the inside, we feel torn. Now, if I try to put this piece of paper back together, I can do some, put some tape on it. But I'm not going to get it fully back together. It's going to look pretty, you know, raunchy. If I try to glue it back together, I'll get glue all over my hands, as messy as I am with glue, and it won't come back together very well. The only way this piece of paper is going to come back together and look like new and be even better is by a miracle. And folks, so many times we try to put ourselves back together. After we've engaged in sin and we've ripped ourselves up, we try to put ourselves back together and we get the tape out and we go to town, we get the glue out, we go to town, we try to do whatever we can to put it back together, but nothing's going to put it back together without a miracle from God. You see, Jesus is the only one who can put us back together. And when he does it, it's not junky looking. When he gets through with us, Actually, he never gets through with us. But in that process of working with us, when he puts us back together, he makes us new. He's creating something that only he can create. That's the idea of him being the God of peace. You see, as the God of peace, he came to us in Jesus. He took the initiative to come to us in Jesus for us to make peace with God. The peace of God, making peace with God took place on the cross. We have to trust Jesus, believe Jesus, and follow Jesus in order to make peace with God. But then we have the peace of God. It is not just making peace with God. It is then living in the peace of God. 
Some folks make, want to make peace with God, but they never get around to living in the peace of God. In other words, this peace that's in the soul of God being brought out in my life. And what he's saying here is that the God of peace be with you. He's saying not only can you have peace with God, you and I can live in the peace of God. We live in that peace of God when we get up off our knees after we've confessed sin to Him and we know what it is to be forgiven and to be cleansed and to be given a new opportunity and a new life. We know the peace of God when we face situations and circumstances in our life that totally overwhelm us, but we know we serve one who is greater than the situation that we are facing. And we know the peace of God when we come to the end of this life and we face death and we realize that the death we're facing, that intimidates us. Jesus already faced it. Jesus already intimidated death. Jesus already conquered it. And so we face death in His power and in what He has already accomplished in His resurrection. Then we know the peace of God. The peace of God. This God of peace, notice what He says next, who brought again the Lord Jesus from the dead. That is the resurrection. The resurrection is the wild delight of God's power. When He raised His Son from the dead, that was the greatest exhibition of the power of God gone a while raising his son from the dead. The resurrection was a real God raising a real Jesus from a real grave. And folks, the greatest testimony we as the church give to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is when we live like He resurrected, we worship like He resurrected, we smile like He resurrected, we talk like He resurrected, we act like He resurrected, and we've got joy like He resurrected. Let the resurrection show up on our face. Let it show up in our feet. At the end of the day, the greatest reality that we have and we hold on to is that Jesus is alive. And He's coming again. The resurrection isn't just past. He rose. It is present. He is risen. And when He rose from the dead, when God raised His Son from the dead, He vindicated everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus accomplished. Now the early Christians their belief that they held to in the resurrection was rooted in two strongly held convictions. Conviction number one, the tomb was found empty on Easter morning. Dr. E.V. Hill, who's gone on to be with the Lord, but he used to pastor the missionary Mount Zion Baptist Church in Los Angeles, used to tell the story. He said, you know, when I toured Europe, they would invite me into the cathedrals and they would say, come on over here and we'll show you where this king was buried and where that queen was buried in the floor of the cathedral. I'd go into other nations in Europe and he'd, he said they'd take me over and show me the sepulchers where this king and this monarch were buried. And I'd stand back and admire the great burial chambers of the kings and queens of antiquity. You go to Egypt and they will show you the great pyramids where the pharaohs were buried. He said, but when I went to Jerusalem and I went to Jesus' tomb, they did a strange thing. He said, they didn't invite me to come and look from a distance and admire his sepulcher and see how he was buried. He said, when I got to his tomb, they said, come on in and look around, but it's empty. He's not here. You see, all the other tombs are filled with monarchs, but the King of kings and 
Avila, O Lord of Lords, his tomb has been empty for three years, 3,000 years, and 3 million years, and on and on it will go. Second conviction they had is that Jesus appeared to his followers in a bodily form. In other words, it wasn't a ghost that appeared. It wasn't an imposter. Jesus appeared in bodily form on multiple days over a 40-day period of time to multiple followers of his. His resurrection meets the criteria for any ancient historical event. And his resurrection explains the power and spread of early Christianity. Why would these disciples go out from this experience if he had not risen from the dead and literally lay down their lives like they did for him? Because they believed that he had raised from the dead. But you know it didn't end with them because this morning in Sri Lanka, as far as they know right now, over 150 Christians in the very act of worshiping a resurrected Savior laid down their lives for the very Savior they were worshiping. Why? Because they knew he was a resurrected Savior and he was worth risking it all to worship him. It says that it raised him from the dead. There is no such thing as a final disaster. His death looked like the final disaster. When God raised his son, there's no final disaster. The resurrection assures us of that. And notice what it says next. He raised from the dead who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. I love the first personal plural pronoun there. Our Lord. Claiming his lordship. Raised who? Not just Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. The term Lord there means that He is supreme. He has cosmic authority and that is that there are no boundaries to where His Lordship will not go. He has moral authority. And that means that He has the right to make moral demands of us. It means that as moral authority we are accountable to Him. Now the term that's translated Lord here in that day and age spoke of a master an owner, a king. He was raised as Lord. And we on resurrection morning were transformed to be servants. Now that's the part of it that we don't always like. I like to talk about Jesus being my Savior and dealing with my sin. But I don't always like to talk about Jesus being my Lord, my Master, my owner, and I am his servant. But the early Christians understood clearly that Jesus rose from the dead as our Lord Jesus Christ. That he rose from the dead as our owner, as our master, as our Lord, as the one who is supreme. In John's Gospel, chapter 20 and verse 16, when Mary Magdalene encounters him the morning of the resurrection, she calls him teacher, which meant she understood herself as the student. I'm here to listen to you, Jesus. I'm here to learn from you, Jesus. You got the knowledge. You got the wisdom. You got the experience. I'm here to listen. I'm here to learn. In John 20, verses 26 through 28, eight days after the resurrection, when Thomas encountered him, he said, my Lord... And my God. 
When Jesus, several days after the resurrection, talked with Peter, he said, Peter, the day is going to come when they're going to take you and they're going to bound you and they're going to lead you in places you don't want to go and you're going to end up giving your life for me. Why? Because you're the servant and I'm the Lord. And that's what lordship is going to mean for you. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 8 and 9, it says that when the women left the garden tomb and they encountered Jesus, they fell at his feet. They took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. They didn't stand back and just say, hey, it's nice you resurrected. Now I've got to get on down the road, go to Corral and celebrate it. They fell down at his feet and they began to worship him. Because how do you respond when you encounter Jesus? You fall down and worship him. Folks have asked me through the years as a pastor, what's going on in heaven and what are people doing in heaven? And I know we come up with all kinds of crazy things to make us feel better, and I understand that. You know, we're going to get to heaven and eat fried chicken and have biscuits and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. We sort of take our cultural backgrounds and bring it into it. Let me tell you what we're going to do when we get to heaven. I can be just as sure as I can be of this, folks. I can't give you a lot of details, but I can tell you in the authority of God's word, what we will do in heaven most of all is worship Jesus Christ. If you want to know what your loved ones who've gone on ahead of you are doing right now, they are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do for eternity is worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says next, verse 20. He is the great shepherd. How did Jesus rise? He rose as the great shepherd. The Greek word translated there is mega. He is the mega shepherd. Now, if you've been around me very long, you will know that the modern usage of the words amazing and awesome and epic that we use to describe everything in society today really grates on my nerves. I ate people, oh, that was epic pizza. I've eaten some good pizza, but I've never eaten epic pizza before. I have come close to having epic indigestion off of pizza, <laughs> but I have never had epic pizza I mean, we just use those words, just, you know, everything's got to have one of those adjectives in front of it. Well, folks, let me put it to you this way. When it says that he's the great shepherd, the mega shepherd, you can pull out any adjective that you want. He is the amazing shepherd. He is the awesome shepherd. He is the fantastic shepherd. He is the epic shepherd. You pick your adjective. That's who he is. He's the mega, the great shepherd who rules from the right hand of God. Now, what does it mean for him to be that great shepherd? In Matthew 18 and verse 10, it describes him as the great shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus described himself as the great shepherd. He says that the shepherd of the sheep lays down his life for the sheep. In fact, repeatedly in John 10, he keeps saying, I'm going to lay down my life for you as the shepherd of the sheep. He says, I'm going to give you eternal life and nobody can snatch you out of my hand. When you decide you're going to follow Jesus and walk with Jesus and Jesus saves you and cleanses you, you are hell in His hand. You can't snatch yourself out of His hand and nobody else can snatch you out of the hand of God. So if you start saying, well, you know, God doesn't love me because I sinned and the Lord doesn't care about me anymore, etc., etc. That's just a lie of the devil. Put the devil in his place and say, Satan, you can't snatch me out of His hand. Nobody can snatch me out of His hand. He says you're going to know his voice. If you go to the Middle East and you see a whole bunch of sheep gathered in one place that belong to different shepherds, 
those shepherds can walk into the middle of all those sheep, and we look up there, and they all look the same to us, but those shepherds can start calling their sheep, and the sheep will recognize the distinct voice of their shepherd and will leave the group and come to their distinct shepherd because they recognize his voice. The work of the Holy Spirit of God in us is to recognize deep inside of us the distinct voice of Jesus when he calls us. But I love this. In Matthew 18.10, Jesus said, let me tell you what the shepherd does. If the shepherd's got a hundred sheep and one of them, just one of them, wanders off, goes and does his own thing, he's going to safely leave the 99 over here. And he's not going to say, I'm happy with my 99. He's going to say, I love my 99 and I got him safe over here, but I got one that's wandered away. I'm going to go after the one, and I'm going to search after the one, and I'm going to stay after it till I find that one, and I'm going to pick him up. I'm going to hold him close to myself. I'm going to put him on my shoulders, and I'm going to bring him back. Now, how in the world does that apply? Some of you that I'm talking to this morning, you're the one. You've wandered away from him. You've gotten away from him, and you knew better, and you messed up, and you wondered, does Jesus love you anymore? Let me tell you, Jesus is after you. He is hot on your heels after you. He is coming after you. He's going to bug you to death and stay on you, and you're going to feel his breath on your neck because Jesus is coming after you in love. He is not satisfied to say, I don't care if they go to hell. I got my 99 over here. He's saying, I'm coming after them. Some of the rest of you that I'm talking about, you got a son, you got a daughter, you got a mom, a dad, somebody that you love, you've prayed for, and you prayed for them, and you prayed for them, and they just keep, keep wandering away and wandering away and wandering away. And what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to know something. I don't look at your son. I don't look at your daughter. I don't look at your mom. I don't look at your dad and say, well, forget them. They've wandered away. The whole family may be serving Jesus, but they've gone their own way. I don't look at them and give up on them. Don't you give up on them. Don't you stop praying because I have not given up on them and I'm going after them. I want you to know that when you pray, I am going after them and I'm going to stay after them and you don't need to give up because I am not giving up on your child. I'm not giving up on your parent. I'm not giving up on that friend. Notice the final description that he gives in verse 20. He says, by the blood of of the eternal covenant. How is Jesus our risen Lord? How do we know the peace of God? By the joy of the covenant. Now covenant signifies. In the ancient world. An obligation or a promise. Undertaken by somebody. When you went to make a covenant with someone. And when they made and entered into covenant with God. God was making a promise. He was obligating himself to the people. But how did you know that the covenant was going to be any good? How did you know that the person making the covenant was going to follow through? How did God assure you that he was going to follow through on his promises? They would do what they call cut a covenant. And the way the covenant was cut was that a sacrifice was made and blood would shed. And it spoke of two things. Number one, the seriousness of the covenant. And then number two, it spoke of the commitment of the covenant. This covenant is serious business. And the giving of a life, usually of an unblemished lamb, 
meant that God was committed to the covenant. When it speaks here of the blood of the covenant, what he's saying here is that God has obligated himself to us. He's promised himself to us. But how do we know the promise is any good? How do we know God's going to live through on the obligation that he has made? Because Jesus cut the new covenant, the eternal covenant, the covenant that will last forever in his blood, in his body, on the cross. And then he sealed the deal when he rose from the dead three days later. And what does this new covenant that he's calling us unto mean? First of all, it means the removal of sin, the forgiveness of sin, and the cleansing from sin. But follow me on this. The removal of sin from our lives is not just, Lord, I sinned, I blew it, I messed up, would you forgive me? So I can go back tomorrow and sin some more, so you can forgive me and cleanse me, so I can go back and sin some more and keep on sinning and keep on getting forgiveness. This idea of cleansing is not that he cleanses me so I can jump back in it again so he can cleanse me some more. It's that he wants to remove the shame, the guilt, but he wants to remove the sin itself from my life. The habit, the addiction itself from my life. So when it's the idea of this covenant is that he wants to remove sin, not just find a way for us to manage sin in our lives. Second idea is inner transformation. He says this covenant means that I will cleanse you of sin, but I'm going to reach into your heart. I'm going to reach into the core of who you are, and I'm going to transform you into a new person. It's a process. Day by day, hour by hour. But I'm transforming you, I'm shaping you, I'm making you like my son, the Lord Jesus. The third aspect of the covenant is a close relationship with God. I'm going to cleanse you of sin. I'm going to remove it from your life. I want to transform your heart. And the reason I want to do all that is I want us to be close. I want you, God says, to know me. And I want to know you. I want us to share life together, the journey of life together. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the 1800s, said, I want to walk so close with God that when I die, it's not that big of a deal when I get to heaven. He did the covenant. He cut the covenant so we could have that kind of relationship with him. As I mentioned earlier, eight days after Jesus rose from the dead, in one of multiple appearances that he had, he appeared to his disciples. And when he appeared to them, Thomas was there. Now, Thomas was not there the first time. And when the other disciples said, Thomas, Jesus rose from the dead, Thomas said, I don't believe it. I got to see the nail prints in his hands, and I got to feel where the spear was in his side, and then I'll believe, but until then, I don't believe it. We call him Doubting Thomas, but I have a feeling most of us would have been the same way. This time, eight days later, Thomas is there. And Jesus looks into Thomas's eyes, and he says, Thomas, here are my hands. You see the scars where the nails were. He pulled back his robe, and he said, Thomas, Here's where the spear went. You can see the place where the spear went in. Thomas, I, I want you to believe. I want you to trust me. I want you to follow me. 
Thomas saw those scars in the hands of Jesus and that scar in the side of Jesus. Thomas didn't need to walk up and stick his fingers in there like he said he needed to. Seeing was enough. Hearing his voice was enough. Looking into his resurrected face was enough. Can you imagine what Thomas must have seen that day? Because you see, he didn't look into hands and into a side and into a face that was white like a ghost. When he looked into it, what he saw was that that evidence that his heart was beating and there was blood flowing through his body and that he was alive. He could have felt his breath on his face. And how did Thomas respond? He responded the only way you really can respond when Jesus shows up in your life. He said, you're my Lord, you're my owner, you're my master, and you are my God. He knew the joy of the king. And folks... The resurrection is about us looking into the face of Jesus and saying, You are my Lord and you are my God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we celebrate your resurrection this day because, Lord, you are our Lord, and our God. Lord, you are our owner. You bought us with the price of the cross. we got to learn to yield to you, Jesus, as our master. We thank you. We bless you. And we praise you. Jesus, thank you for the covenant that you want to enter into with us. Thank you, Jesus, for your peace. And thank you, Jesus, for being our shepherd. And thank you, Lord, when we walk away from you, wander away from you, even run after you, away from you. You come after us. And you will not be satisfied until you pick us up, you hold us to yourself, and you bring us back. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never chosen to follow Him, to serve Him, to love Him, to belong to Him, I want to invite you to say to Him this day, Jesus, I want to know You. I want to follow You. I want to serve You. You, Jesus, are my Master. And I will be your servant. Just a moment we will sing. About the amazing grace of God. And I want to invite you. If you want to follow Jesus this day. Come forward. And to publicly. Identify with Jesus. He has no secret followers. And to say, I will follow Jesus and I will serve Jesus. So I invite you to come as we sing. Love to pray with you. If you're here and you feel like the Lord's impressing upon you to become part of our church family, then I invite you to come. If you need to follow him in believer's baptism, as you saw earlier in this service, we invite you to come. 
the Lord is speaking to your heart and saying, I want you to commit to serving me in ministry, we invite you to come. If you just kneel, you want to kneel and pray or you need to do business with the Lord there in the pew, I encourage you to do so. Lord, help us right now to respond to you, our risen Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand again.